0: We're going to have the reading of scripture by Ruth Kiros. If you guys can encourage her as she comes forward.
1: I'll be reading in English first and then in Spanish. All right. In Luke chapter 14, 1 through 11. If everybody can please stand for the reading of the word. Luke 14, verses 1 through 11. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told the parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and stay to you, say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. <laughs> Lucas 14 del 1 al 11. Aconteció un día de reposo que habiendo entrado para comer en casa de un gobernante que era fariseo, estos le acechaban. Y allí aquí que estaba delante de él un hombre hidrópico. Entonces Jesús habló a los intérpretes de la ley y a los fariseos diciendo, es lícito sanar en el día de reposo, más ellos callaron, y él tomándole la ma- le sanó y le despidió. Y dirigiéndose a ellos dijo, ¿quién de vosotros si su asno o su buey cae <coughs> me, en algún pozo no lo sacará inmediatamente, aunque sea en día de reposo? Y no le podían replicar a estas cosas. Observando cómo escogían los primeros asientos a la mesa, refirió a los convidados una parábola diciéndoles: Cuando fueres convidado por alguno a bodas, no te sientes en el primer lugar, no sea que otro más distinguido que tú esté convidado por él. Y viniendo a él que te convidó a ti y a él, te diga: Del lugar, Da lugar a este y entonces comiences con vergüenza a ocupar el último lugar. Mas cuando fueres convidado, ve y siéntate en el último lugar para que cuando venga el que te convidó, te diga, amigo, sube más arriba. Entonces tendrás gloria delante de los que se sientan contigo a la mesa, porque cualquiera que se enaltece será humillado y el que se humilla será enaltecido. Amén.
0: You may be seated. I don't know if I was the only one here in heaven singing to us, and know where that was coming from. Um, I said, "God has arrived," and uh, but no, he's picking up radio frequencies. So I'm grateful for that. Anybody ready for the word of the Lord, Amen. friends? I like to tag my text this morning. Guess who's coming to dinner? Guess who's coming to dinner? Anybody remember Tina Turner? Oh, y'all in church, y'all act like y'all know who I'm talking about. (laughs) Tina Turner. One of her biggest songs is called, What Love Got to Do With It. What love got to do with it. I would like to borrow from her musicology and ask you this question. What does love got to do with this Christian walk? What does love have to do with this Christian walk? What does love got to do with Christian fellowship and Christian living? Friends, I will contend this morning that it has everything to do with it. First, we start with an invisible God who makes himself known with visible love. Love that was embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. God didn't just say he loved us. God came down from heaven to display that he loved us. Loved embodied in his son. Help me out, John. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Did you know that if God didn't leave heaven, there'll be no church and there'll be no salvation. What love got to do with it? The scriptures put it like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Friends, the world hasn't seen and will not see a love that is parallel to the one on Calvary. There'll be no love. I don't care how romantic your relationship is. I don't care about the goosebumps that you feel. I don't care how many googly eyes you make. There'll never be a love compared to the love of God that was displayed on Calvary. What love got to do with it? However, church, the world world ought to get a glimpse from God's children of his love, at least every now and again. They ought to see evidences of God's love in his church. How we love each other in the church in other image bearers outside the church is the visible evidence that we love an invisible God. Let me say that again. The way that we treat one another, the way that we posture ourselves towards one another is the visible evidence that we know an invisible God. But I'm afraid One look at church history and we come to the swift conclusion that we have acted in ways in which we would argue that love has nothing to do with the Christian walk. We have devalued human worth by exchanging our relational currency of love for hate. This morning, I'm reminded, brothers and sisters, of 290 A.D., the height of Diocletian's last persecution of the Christian faith. He was the Roman emperor who murdered preachers, burned Christian villages, pillaged Christian families, and tried to burn every Bible he could. It is said he would clothe Christians in candle wax and use them as lights for his wild parties. But friends... As devastating and disturbing as that is, I'm not surprised of such hatred in the heart of an unbeliever. However, the greatest persecution of the church are not evil, unbelieving emperors, but moreover and more devastating and more disturbing is those who claim to love Jesus but are found taking sides with hate by devaluing human life or complicit with devaluing of human life as if love ain't got nothing to do with the Christian life. Go back in time with me, if you will. Back to the moment of the year 1963 and listen to a statement from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., He said, I must admit, I have gone through those moments when I was greatly disappointed with the church and what it has done in this period of social change. We must face the fact in America, the church is still the most segregated major institution. At 11 on Sunday morning, when we stand and sing, and Christ has no east or west, We stand at the most segregated hour in this nation. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. This is tragic. Nobody of honesty can overlook this. Now, I'm sure if the church had taken a stronger stand all along, we wouldn't have many of the problems we have. What do we learn? That we do not get to claim that our churches are Christ-centered, gospel-centered, and that our lives are all about him while we simultaneously overflow with hatred towards anyone who bears the image of God. You don't get to say that you love Jesus and that you're all about the gospel while you hate people who are made in the image of God. Can I put it like 1 John puts it? How can you say you love God who you don't see and hate your brother who you do see? Can we get real this morning? Can't say that we love God while we support systems that make it easy to take human life. How can we believe in a God who died and rose on our sinful, undeserving behalf and hate people different than us? The true measurement of how Christ-centered and gospel-centered we are is contingent on how we love one another. We must measure the comprehension of our orthodoxy by our orthopraxy. In other words, do you walk it like you talk it? Y'all know that song. Don't, don't. let me start wrapping up here. Walk it like you talk it. Friends, what love got to do with it? Friends, love is the bridge that orthodoxy walks to get to our hearts. But friends, it is not just a question of do we love, but who we love. It is not just a simplistic question of do we love, but the further question is who do we choose to love? What love got to do with it? Well, Jesus puts it like this. If you love those who love you, What credit is that to you? Okay, I'm stepping on toes now. Y'all getting quiet on me. If sinners love those who love them, and if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that? Jesus like, ain't nobody impressed that you love your mama? Do you love that coworker that gets on your last nerve? Don't nobody care? If you love that boyfriend you head over heels with, do you love your baby daddy that keeps getting on your nerves? Oh, I'm coming to your house this morning. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? I ain't giving them my money so that I'll never see it again we quick to give to those who will give back to us. But what about those, you know, they come into your mind. And if you ain't got nobody coming to your mind, you probably that person <laughs> that don't pay folks back. Start thinking through your debt list who you got to give. As a matter of fact, I got people coming to my head and owe me money. I'm up here struggling and all they got to do is get my $40 a day on me. <sighs> all right, all right. Let me let it go. Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Love your enemies. Do good to them. I don't want that to pass you by. Welcome to Christianity, people. We ain't called to no punk love. We ain't called to no soft love. We're called to a love that'll make you cry in pain because you got to do the very thing that you don't want to do. I said this last week, and I'll say it again. God ain't worried about your comfort more than he's worried about your glory. Oh, how easy it will be to build a church by preaching prosperity gospel. A gospel that tell you that this year is your year, and, and, and God got a word for you this year, and everything's going to turn around. I came to tell you that sometimes God calls you in the most uncomfortable places. But love your enemies and do good to them and lend to them without experiencing to get anything back, expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. This morning I want to argue that who we choose to love is the indication of how Christ-centered and gospel-centered we truly are. Who we choose to love is the indication and the measurement of how Christ-centered and gospel-centered we truly are. Friends, I start with this point, the great equalizer. We are all made in the image of God. Let's not make any bones about it. We start out with this foundational truth: all human life is sacred because it bears God's image, the Amago Day. Did you know that you and I do not derive our value from our occupation? Our looks, whether you got them or not, bank accounts, ethnicity or location, but solely on who we are made, the image that we are made in, which is the image of God. Our value is not rooted in anything else. So that if you lose your job today, you don't lose your value tomorrow because you're made in the image of God trying to find your value in some person in some job life is fickle you better root your image in the you better root your value in the image of god because god never changes the basis of our hate for abortion for racism for misogyny for father abandonment for domestic violence in injustice it's because all people are made in the image of God. Humans bear the image of God. And we see this clearly in Genesis, in the beginning. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And seal the earth and subdue it. Nothing else in all of creation reflects God like human beings. As beautiful as the cosmos is, as beautiful as all those animals, oh and y'all know I love animal planet. As beautiful as all those animals are on animal planet, all the way from the deep blue sea to the to to, to, to the killer. Well, to to, to microscopic little things like bacteria and viruses. You can search all of that and come to this one conclusion. One human being has more to say about the image of God than all of creation. Therefore, if you are on the expressway and you see a deer lying dead, no one is shocked. But if we see a human being lying dead on the expressway, cars are stopping. Phone calls are being made. Why? God has put something down in the inside of us that says, human beings have worth. Jesus gets at this point in the importance of human life when he was invited to a dinner. If you don't mind, let's go to the dinner with Jesus this morning. One Sabbath... When Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. So check the scene out. Jesus gets an invitation to a dinner. Oh, I would love to get an invitation to a dinner, just throwing that out there. But Jesus gets an invitation to a dinner and he takes up the invitation. Now you would think that this invitation is on the basis of Jesus is cool with this Pharisee, this prominent Pharisee, this dude who is known throughout the land of Israel. He's that guy. He's that dude. So to get an invitation from him is all that in a bag of chips, Jesus gets an invite, but he doesn't get an invite because, oh, boy, it's cool with him. He actually gets an invite because old boy doesn't like him. You ever got invited somewhere because people didn't like you? Or you ever had friends that would get up close to you? Not because they love you, because they trying to get some information from you. You know, people, they smile in your face all the time. They trying to take your place. They call them backstabbers. Uh-huh. Jesus had some backstabbers in his life. And I'm so glad that God has some backstabbers because as good as Jesus is, if he can have enemies, how is little old me going to think that I won't have no enemies? Jesus goes to the dinner. He gets there. He's doing his thing, and they watching, my man. They got their eyes on them. They kind of stalking them out a little bit. Can you imagine now going to somebody's house and you got cats watching you in the cut? You know, back back then, before I was saved, that's a fight right there. I'm surprised Jesus wasn't scrapping in the place. You feel me? But he keeps his cool. He real easy because you know why? Jesus ain't really worried about nobody watching him because Jesus ain't got nothing to hide. It's only us that got something to hide that we got to worry about. People watching us. But look how foul these dudes are. They had planted a man suffering from dropsy right in front of Jesus. They didn't know this man who was struggling with sickness because they loved him. They called him to the party so that they could use him. Jesus knows that they're trying to set him up. He asked them, is it lawful? to heal on the Sabbath or not, but they remained silent. Well, you ask why. Well, you got to understand a little bit of background here. The Mosaic law didn't forbid healing on the Sabbath, but their rabbinic traditions did. Let me pause right there for a second. Because one thing about religion is religion puts religion over people. Religion cares more about traditions. It cares more about rules than it actually cares about people. Do you know that you can be the most religious person and simultaneously be the most hateful person in the world? Just because you're religious doesn't mean that you know God. And just because you invite God in your house don't mean that you know God. You can have scriptures on the wall. Mm-hmm. A Bible open on the coffee table and be the most hateful, ugliest, wicked person there is. Because if those scriptures on the wall never get on your heart, it doesn't matter how many coffee cups you put on it and how many shirts you print until you know him. They called this man over knowing that he's struggling and already an outcast of society so that they can catch God up. Imagine that, trying to catch God up. Well, how you do that? Trying to set God up is a bad thing. When they refuse to answer his question, he goes ahead and Jesus heals the man anyway and sends him away, and how does he then appeal to their stubborn and hard religious hearts Regarding this ill man, Jesus says this, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? Jesus is now arguing with logic here. Jesus appeals to the human worth. It is wrong for me. Is it wrong for me to release a man made in the image of God from illness? And you would do it for your own son. Let me pause right there. What is Jesus teaching them? We don't treat each other with kindness because of our titles. We treat each other with kindness because we're made in the image of God. And if you'll do good to your son, you ought to do good to your neighbor. If you wouldn't cuss your mama out, you shouldn't cuss nobody else's mama out. Let me come to where y'all at. Right? If you'll feed somebody else's kid, you ought to feed your own kid. Boy, I be mad. I send my kid over somebody's house and they didn't fed their babies. And hey, you didn't see in the lunch, so we didn't feed them. We don't do that, do we? Instead, we go into our own pockets, we go into our own fridge and we make sure that baby eats. But Jesus goes a little bit farther. Besides, you would save an ox who has much less worth than any human. And the sad part here in America, people love dogs more than they love people. Yeah. They'll feed a stray dog before they free a human on the street. Yeah. On on. And Jesus says, You'll save an ox and you won't save a human. Yeah. And now you're going to come at me knowing that in the privacy of your own home, when your sheep or your ox fell into a ditch, you got down and got it. You didn't get religious. You know why they got that ox, right? That was food. They were caring about themselves. Jesus doesn't care about how religious they were, but he does care about how they treat people. I hope you caught that. God doesn't care about your church attendance. God doesn't care about how much you read the Bible, and God doesn't care how much you pray, although you should do those things. But God does care about how you treat that person next to you. This is what he said in James 1.27. And the Bible says, what does love got to do with it? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Friends, we learned that gospel-centered people fight over the low seat. But far be it from us to prompt ourselves up in our chairs in here, and look down at the Pharisees, because in many ways, we have not been much better than the Pharisees. If we are honest, we have treated things better than other fellow human beings. We have treated our phones better than we treat people. At least we close our phones, and we make sure they're protected. Some of y'all phones so bedazzled up, it's crazy. We'll spend hundreds on our cell phone, but we won't do it on a person. We treat our cars better than we treat people. At least our houses got, got, uh, uh, at least our cars got houses. We treat our cars better than we treat people. We won't leave our cars out in the cold. But we'll leave people out in the cold. I know y'all ain't going to talk to me this morning. We assure that our cars are safe and warm. We give them a house to stay in. We are guilty Of assigning worth to people based on their position, their skin color, what they can offer us, what they look like, their gender. And I could go on and on and on and on on the ways we categorize each other and say, because you got this position, I'll treat you like this. And because you look like this, I'll treat you like that. God cannot stand it. And why do we fail at loving each other as God would love us? One word, sin. One thing about sin is it transcends all cultures, white, black, Latino, Asian. It don't matter. We all sinners. Where there's flesh, there's mess all the time. One thing about sin is that it transcends all cultures. The Bible says, "For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth." It goes on, as it is written, "None is righteous, no, not one." Doesn't matter how cute you are this morning. No matter how good looking you are. How many muscles you got? No matter what your bank account is. No, not one. Can you feel yourself lowering already? No, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all in a dilemma. We are all in a situation We belittle each other because we first belittle God. God. Belittling always starts with God, and then we belittle one another horizontally. We have to disregard God before we disregard one another. And nothing reveals our belittling of God in others than the attitude to put self above all. Let's go back to the dinner, if you will. So Jesus is at the dinner party. And observes all the guests are fighting to sit in the place of honor. Y'all ain't going to believe this. Here it is. Jesus is at the party. He's kicking it. He's chilling. And now it's time to eat. And people throwing elbows and trying to get to the table. But y'all got to understand, in Jesus' day, the table was shaped in a U shape. And so right there in the middle where the U curves at, those were the seats of honor right there. And, And men and women would fight to get to the middle. That's why... Uh, Jesus' disciple says, Jesus, when you get to heaven, can, can, can I sit on the left and my brother sit on the right? Because, because those were places of honor. You know, if you sat there, you were all that, and everybody would look at you. They must be somebody. Look at them. Can you imagine? Hey, bro, that's my seat. Bro, you ain't see my coat right there? I left my cell phone there for a reason. What you doing? You ain't mad about no seat. You mad about being seen. And here they are, they scuffling and trying to get to the middle of the table. And Jesus is looking at this, and he's like, what's going on? If anybody should have been in the middle, it should have been Jesus. Mm -hmm. If anybody should sit at the middle of the table, it ought to be be Christ. And here, a man at the party trying to get in the middle. Nobody wanted the places that were far off. From the middle. In this case, the the guests had conducted an undignified scramble for the best seat. And Jesus teaches them a lesson and us a lesson at this dinner party. He tells a parable that encouraged them to take the lesser seat and not the higher seat. He says it like this. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, sin demands its own way. Sin says, me first, and everybody else, get in where they fit in. Sin says, me first, serve me first. It's about me. Sin says, who's not making me happy in my life? They got to go. Sin says, who's not like me? They got to go. Sin says, if you don't make me comfortable, you got to go. And we put people on our left and on our right that will support us and give us yes all the time. Sin says, my comfort my race, my gender. Sin says walk out on your baby. Sin says abort your baby. Sin says take advantage of your sister. Sin says segregate from those who are not like you. Sin says ignore the system around you. Sin says shut up. And be quiet and don't say anything to me that makes me uncomfortable. Sin is all about me. But what love got to do with it? Love is all about God and us. Love does not demand its own way somewhere I read. Love isn't fighting for a seat at the table but fighting for those who are too weak to have a seat at the table. We will know how Christ-centered and gospel-centered we are by what seat we are fighting for. Are you fighting for your seat at the table, or are you fighting for those who don't have a voice to have a seat at the table? How we carry ourselves at the dinner table will tell how Christ-centered we are. In fact, didn't Christ take the low seat? so that we would have a seat at the table? Didn't he leave his seat called a throne so that you would have a seat at the table? Did he not give up the high place so that you would dwell with him in the high place? Did he not do that for you? We see this in Philippians. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. A thing to be grasped. Let me pause it parenthetically. There is no humbling that you cannot do. If God, who is God of gods, light of lights, eternal, everlasting, Alpha and Omega, the son of Jesse, the promised Messiah, can lower himself, you're not that good looking not to lower yourself. Yeah. I'm afraid. In America, we do not get Christianity. God left heaven and became like you and I. You know what kind of downgrade that is? Would you go from a house back to an apartment? If you had to. You wouldn't want to. Would you downgrade? Would you go from being a human being to being a mosquito? If you do, you won't be alive much longer. I don't know why God invited the mosquitoes. I mean, uh, created those mosquitoes. Jesus downgrades himself, and he takes the low seat. Jesus should have been at the center of the U-shaped table, but he leaves his seat, which is a throne. Why? To commune with his enemies. He leaves heaven to commune with his enemies so that you and I could be in the presence of God. You do know prior to our belief in the gospel that we were enemies of God. You do know before we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that we were far off from God. You do know that God would have killed you if you came into his presence if Jesus did not come. You do know that, right? Well, you ought to give God a loud shout of praise that he sent his son to die for your sins. Jesus gave up his high seat in order to bring those who were far off close, in order to make those who were spiritually poor, spiritually rich. God downgrade so that we might upgrade. The true, unadulterated gospel, hear me clearly, can in no way support racism, ethnic superiority, abortion, absent fathers, misogyny, segregation, injustice, domestic violence, belittling of the handicap, distance from the poor, or any type of trampling over the image of God. It is impossible. Amen. Gospel doesn't uphold it. The cross didn't come for that. The cross came to reconcile us to God and to one another. But what love got to do with it? Well, right before this verse, we are told to be like Jesus Christ. And I'm so glad that this is here because many Christians say that was for Jesus to do, not for me. I ain't God. I can't love my enemies like that. Y'all know how we are. That's Jesus. God's still working on my heart. Well, let him work then. These are the excuses that we give not to love our enemies. I'll get there eventually. We cool as long as they don't come by me. Y'all know what I'm talking about? We straight, just don't say nothing to me. If you say something, bow right there. My, it ain't my fault. They came by me. That was my reflex when I see him. That was a reflex. That ain't come from my heart. That came from my nerves. That my nerves are bad. You see, that ain't got nothing to do with me. I told him don't come. I told, told him, let me let me stop. Because I'm crazy. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affections and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now's the time to leave if you don't believe that. That I'm not doing that, Dex. Let, let let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. We will know how Christ-centered we are by what seat we take at the dinner table. We will know how Christ-centered we are by how much we hate the systems that devalue people made in the image of God. We will know how much we believe the gospel by our posture towards people who are not like us. Remember Jesus Invited us to the dinner table, although we were not like him. Yeah. And you don't get more polar opposite than this right Jesus and sinners sitting at the same table. All right now. All right now. Sinners communing with the sinless. My question to you is who's at your dinner table? Gospel centered people don't discriminate at dinner time. Follow me back to the dinner party, if you will. Verse 12. And Jesus said to his hosts, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. Give a banquet, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame." And you will be blessed. In other words, invite the weak. Yeah. Invite those without. Yeah. Invite those who have nothing. Yeah. Invite, those, invite those who are prior. polar opposite of you. Invite them to your house. You say you love God? Invite people who can't repay you. Hey. Don't say that you love me. Don't say that you know me. And you treat people that are hard to love like you don't know them. I didn't say it. The Bible said it. Invite them. At first, Jesus' exhortation seems strange. Is he saying stop inviting your friends and relatives over for dinner? Some of y'all said, I've been thinking about it. (laughs) But clearly, Jesus' point is that we should not exclusively invite our friends or relatives or especially our rich neighbors. Why? Because love is more than a secondhand emotion. It is the tangible evidence that we belong to an invisible God. And godly love reaches over the lines of comfort. Godly hearts and eyes do not scan the room and say, who looks like me? Who would I remain comfortable with? Who's easy to get along with? Godly love doesn't do that. I'll go over there and I'll hang out with those who are not like me. Godly love is not cliquish. We love the woman at the well story, don't we? Oh, we love the woman at the well. Jesus supposed to be eating with his disciples. And what does he go do? He goes and kick it with a woman at the well. And if you know her story, she doesn't have a cute story because she shouldn't be at the well by herself. She should have been accompanied with some friends and family. But you know what? People knew our history. They knew what she was about. And they distanced themselves from her. But here's the crazy part. Y'all better quit acting like God doesn't deal with racism and sexism in the Bible because he does. And let me show you if I can park here at the woman at the well for a moment. Jesus is a rabbi. Rabbi don't talk to women. But Jesus talks to her anyways. Do you know what they're going to say about you, Jesus? Do you know how they're going to talk about you, Jesus? You're going against cultural norms. What are you doing? On top of that, Jesus is a Jew. She's a Samaritan. Check this out in the verse. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, and I want to say it in a deep voice, give me a drink. Hey, hey, hey. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? I can see her like twirling her neck and everything. Thinking the Savior trying to holler at her, probably get her digits, but he ain't even known that. Now, here's the line for Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. John goes out of his way. To make clear that Jews and Samaritans don't kick it with each other. They ain't vibing like that. They ain't cool like that. In fact, Jewish people will go all the way around Samaria and they had to walk. Wasn't no Uber. Wasn't no Lyft. You just had your two feet. You know you don't like nobody. When you'll run a marathon before you'll go to shortcut, they didn't like each other. They did all they could to avoid one another and Jesus has the audacity, the unmitigated gall to cross over cultural lines and to have a conversation with a woman who's not like him and has a different gender than him. But what is he telling us? Gender doesn't matter when it comes to the Imago day. Ethnicity doesn't matter when it comes to loving your neighbor. Jesus didn't care what the Pharisees had to say. He didn't care what the disciples had to say. This woman needs a savior and I'm going to cross over to go tell her. I wish I had some Christians that are saying I don't care about no cultural lines. These people are thirsty for the gospel and I'm going to go tell them come hell's to high water. Don't care if they look at me wrong. Don't care if they look at me crazy. She's in need. Jesus didn't care. Found him around the cripple in the lame, healing those who he shouldn't have been around. Find him giving parables, making Samaritans into heroes, knowing he shouldn't be doing that. Loving those, even the Pharisees who were trying to set him up, he was loving them anyways. And you know good and well that people don't love their enemies. Jesus was trying to teach us something to be gospel-centered, and to be God-centered means that we have these cultural lines that society has made in order that we may love one another. Amen. This woman was being belittled, and Jesus comes running her way. But friends, I'm afraid here in America and here in our churches we have created pockets in the church that God's not cool with. Next to what you mean, pockets. Y'all, this last week, I went to the dentist. And if you got to preach every week, you look for an illustration anyway. You don't care where you find it. Y'all need an illustration, Lord. So I get to the dentist's office. I check in. They check out, make sure I got insurance. Y'all ain't going to believe young black brother got some insurance. Yeah, amen, amen. So I get there. I get there, they put me in the chair, they lay me back, ah, bam, light on me and everything. Uh, the lady comes in, and she does a whole bunch of stuff, but this is the point that I want to get to. She takes out this object, it has a, a little sharp, little pointy end. She said, I'm going to start counting out numbers, don't you worry about it, I'm going to explain it to you. I said, well, go on, get your count on. She takes the thing, and she's going, one, two, four, three, two, one. She finally leans me back up, I said, can you explain to me what you were doing and what that counting means? She says, young man, that counting was me counting the pockets in your teeth and in your gums. I said, oh, really? Where do pockets come from? She said, pockets come from bacteria that gets down in your gums. And when they get down inside of there, they start eating away at your gums. And these bacteria, they like to hide in dark places so, that, so, they, so they can go unnoticed. And over time, they decay your whole mouth. Friends, there are some greater pockets in the church that we've created that got down into the fellowship, that got down into the church, and they've been decaying and eating away at the church like Pac-Man. And it's been going unnoticed. But if the church is going to keep its bite in culture, we have got to deal with these things. It's sad to say, and I hate to say it, that there's a such thing as a black church. Never should have been a such thing as a black church. But the white church was so focused on being the white church instead of being the church. And so we look back historically and we see the segregation in our society but friends, I'm so thankful that when I look out in this room, that Bethel Gary wants to write a new story, a new a something that is aligned with the gospel, that black and white doesn't separate us, but the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks a better narrative. Oh my friends, we got other pockets in the church. The mistreatment of women. We've been complicit with the world and trampling on our sisters. And taken away from them. But friends, I came to tell you that God will call us to stand up and treat our women with dignity and with respect. Because they deserve it. Friends, there's pockets all in the church. And until we deal with them and repent of them, the world will never take the church serious. And the issue with these pockets Is that they're a lie to the gospel. They're not telling the truth on what the gospel has to say. But y'all know I wasn't leaving that dentist's office until I got some good news. Because when she told me I had pockets in my mouth, I said I'm going to have to go further into my pockets in order to fix this. Y'all know how it is. I know about them pockets, but let me tell you about these financial pockets. That pocket can't go too deep. I ain't going to be able to reach. Friends. I asked her, so then what? Oh, she said, you know what we do? We go in and we clean it out. But she said, no cleaning happens without blood showing up because the blood brings tissue and healing. Friends, I came to tell you, there may be pockets in the church, but it ain't nothing that the blood of Jesus cannot heal. The blood that'll never lose its power. The blood that reaches every high mountain. The blood that reaches every low valley. I wish I had some people in the room that knew that the blood healed the pockets in your life. And now the blood went down and killed the disease. It went down and healed and removed those things. Oh, I'm so thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, it's the same blood. 2,000 years ago, when they stretched them wide and they hugged them high, and for you and me, he died. I'm so thankful that the blood showed up in my own pockets when I was doing my own thing, when I was compromising on my own. It's one thing to look out on the world and see their pockets. It's another thing when you look at your own pockets and you say, as jacked up and as messed up and as distant as I was from God, if the can heal me. The blood can heal racism. If the blood can heal me, the blood can heal misogyny. God's blood ever lose his power. Friends, left the dentist with good news, rejoicing in the blood of Jesus Christ. But she said, hey, young man, you need to know one more thing. That I'll remove all the tartar and plaque buildup. The fight ain't over. You got to go home and you got to apply your toothbrush, your floss, and your mouthwash. Because the moment you leave this place, the bacteria starts fighting again. Friends, we may have came some ways, but I came to tell you, church, we got on fighting because the moment we begin to cross cultural lines the moment we begin to love one another you know who's waiting on the sideline the enemy is waiting and he wants to destroy and he wants to create those pockets again but if I had some people in the room that wouldn't mind praying with me that wouldn't mind reading their word with me if we would hold hands and lock arms together well God we're so grateful that the blood never loses his power. Though we've compromised in many ways through our segregation, through misogyny, through father abandonment and many more. Father, we rejoice this morning that the victory has already been won because of what you've done. If you believe that this morning, If you want to get your bike back this morning, if you want to deal with the pockets in your life, if we're going to deal with the pockets in our church, the only way that we're going to do it is if we put the gospel back in the center. And let me give it to you like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that those who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I don't know if you're in this room and you've yet to come to a saving knowledge. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to invite you and give you an opportunity. To surrender your life. Over to him.